Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to part two of the Stages conversation with producer John Frost. In part two, he describes the rise of the Gordon Frost organisation and, after the tragic loss of his co-founder, Ashley Gordon, the necessary task of taking the helm as CEO of the company. GFO launches onward and finds success with shows like Big River, South Pacific Hello Dolly and Smokey Joe's Cafe. Frost production of The King and I rewards with considerable triumph, scooping several Tony Awards after the production transfers to Broadway. The show hadn't been produced in Australia for 20 years. It was a major win for Frost and opened many doors internationally. A West End production followed with Elaine Page playing Annalee and Owens. There have also been the theatrical misfires that confirm the business gamble of producing commercial product. Frost ponders these missteps and responds to the comments that have often questioned his choices of show, his casting decisions and his development of original product. He is loyal to a legion of performers who were on the ground floor of our industry and is infused by any opportunity to develop a new star. He is happiest when he's making theatre and still gets starstruck when finding himself working with idols like Julie Andrews, who directed his 60th anniversary production of My Fair Lady. In part two of this absorbing conversation with impresario John Frost, he relishes the triumphs, analyses the disasters and contemplates the future of musical theatre and entertainment. He is indeed evidence of a boy who had a dream, pursued it and won. This is great, John. Is it? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, really good, really good. And and great stories and history to, to get down and preserve. Well, and no, I think that's really good too. And that's one of the other things that I think that... Um, preserving this because you know some young kid one day is going to say oh you know there was this guy called john frost oh that we've got some tapes of him you know you should listen to it It, they can only that's why i started also for any kids that are wondering to to realize there are all sorts of pathways yeah yeah that's right Mm. so big river Mm. is is one of your first big Mm, mm. it's uh, the first uh, big multi-musicals correct yeah other than jerry's girls was what it was but this was the first grown-up big Outside of the footbridge, I guess. Correct. Because you, you've done a whole lot of yeah, Jerry's yeah. Girls, yeah. Venetian Twins, yeah, yeah, As Is, yeah, yeah. Corpse. Yeah. Yeah, all those, those those great plays and things at the footbridge. You you start these these big shows. Um, and also we start to see that, I guess it's the cleverness with casting. I mean, that, that casting for Big River, you assemble a cast that's drawn from classical theatre, um, commercial pop, and a television presenter. You know, it's this disparate yeah, sort of uh, performers uh, something for who everybody. come together, and it was just magic. Yeah, you yeah. saw it, did you? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it was terrific. Um, your casting decisions, I think, as we discussed in the last mm. episode, have also always garnered attention. Yeah. But you've been very loyal to a, a stable of performers who mm. you seem to like using again mm. and again mm. and again mm. with Anthony mm. and Lisa mm. and all that. Is that because they're good box office, or they don't answer back? No, they certainly answer back. I can assure you. Um, no, there's no no fear of that. Um, it it I I think it's this thing, a bit to do with the tra- the tradition, that one of my biggest disappointments in this country is that we do not have a a, a theatre star system, and the media don't get behind it and and support it. Now, in the days of in Melbourne tonight. The Mike Walsh show, you know Ray Martin and Kerry Ann and all that sort of thing. You had you, you, performers had an outlet to go out there and do become themselves, become Nancy Hayes, 
stage star, Jill Perryman, whoever, or Canelli or Geraldine Turner. And develop a loyal following. And I mean, de- you develop with, a following. With Anthony and correct, Marina, correct. those performers who were releasing CDs yeah, at the yeah. time, they could, they could um, have that exposure and publicise yeah, them on the that's right. Shows. They've got nowhere now. Like, yeah. Got nowhere. So it's either all online stuff or or there's nothing. So that that is a disappoint, disappointment. And I, I think with using people that I like working with, it's not so much that, it's more about, it's, it's a bit about, and we were just talking about this the other day, it's a bit about trying to say, okay, let me think. Um, Anna O'Byrne, who did My Fair Lady mm. for me, mm. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. And I want to find another vehicle for Anna O'Byrne so you can build on that thing she did with my fair, playing Eliza in My Fair Lady, the concert with Ramin around Australia, things like to build her career. So I'm constantly, there's, there's a handful of those women and men that, you know, Natalie Bassingthwaite and, and Alinta Chinsley. Yeah, now, you know, those two girls and, of course, you know, Casey Donovan, they their careers need to be, built on so they'll do Chicago now very successfully and they are doing it very successfully but in 12 months time they should have another show so it builds on that and builds on that but you know some of them don't want that anyway they're married and got two kids and they have a a private life they want to do that too so some want it some don't you know Lucy Durack who for me is sort of the queen of musical theatre in this country you know you can say to Lucy we've got a problem we're not selling enough tickets can you run down George Street or Burke Street naked, sitting on top or, and pushing a, an elephant? And she'd go, yeah, what time do I have to be there? <laughs> you know, she's fantastic. And I love that in, yeah. in her. Um, and then you can get people that, you know, just don't want to do anything, which drives me nuts. Yeah. And you're very loyal to those performers of old, you know, uh, state recreating that production of Hello, Dolly for Jill Perry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a deliberate with her. There's no, yeah. never anybody else other than Jill for that. We did that. And also believe, you know, a lot of those old J.C. Williamson performers appear at your opening night. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I still, Bunty Turner told Yeah, me that's that, yeah. right. Yeah, I still invite them. Um, and, you know, I've never worked with Bunty. You know, I did have this fantasy at one stage that she would have been a lovely Mrs. Higgins, yes. you know. But Wouldn't that be nice? I think she sort of doesn't want to do that anymore. Um, but um, it's it's good. No, I think you, you've got to look after those people. And, and I think the public... The certain amounts of public want to see them up there. Yeah. You know, like June Salter did two or three shows for me before she died. And, and you know, June would run down, you know, she played the old Mrs. Medlock in Secret Garden when I did it in the 90s and that, and she'd run down and take her curtain call and there was a big whoosh in the audience, you know. And, and so, there might be little roles, but you'd yeah. throw in Stuart Wagstaff yeah, or yeah, Lorraine Stuart, Bailey. Correct, or, yeah, 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 all yeah. of that. And I think there's an audience that want to see those people. Yeah. And they shouldn't be forgotten. Right. Because they'll forget about us when our time's up. What about Alan Jones? What was the thinking behind that? I love that. Yeah. To me, that in, is nothing a heart... Yeah. No, what was it in? No, it was no, Annie. No, it was Annie, sorry. Annie, Annie. FDR. I yeah. said, I came up... Because I've got to know Alan quite well, and I like him. <laughs> I like Alan Jones. I listen to him every morning. Oh, right? That, that says a lot. Yes, and I, I like his politics. <laughs> so, um, anyway... So I, um, how did I come to do it? I think it just came one night and I thought he could do that. He could do that role. 
and I'd get some free publicity and upset a few people along the way. I was in a cheeky period that time. You like stirring the pot. Yeah, I do. I think it's really important because everyone takes themselves so seriously these Mm. days. It drives me nuts. So, look, Alan came along and he was first to say, you know, I don't do this sort of thing. I don't know what to do. Um, And he did say to me, he said, I should be paying you to do this, you know, for, for letting me do this show. Anyway, so he came in, he worked very hard in the rehearsals and that, he could never get the accent down, and we knew that. Um, (laughs) And, you know, we got hate letters, people saying, I'm not coming to see the show. So I said, well, just write back and tell them, that's fine, go and see something else. I have another show down the road. Anyway, but, but, but it's like, you know, hot air. And also to see Alan in a situation where he wasn't in charge. And all of a sudden he had a bit role in a big company of people and how he had to play second fiddle to it. And he absolutely loved it because I think for the first time in his working career, he hasn't been the star. You know, he hasn't been the head. He hasn't been, the, you know, the trainer. He hasn't been the, um, you know, the, the broadcaster, di- broadcaster yeah. you know or on Fox or whatever. And he absolutely loves the day. And you go to his house in the uh, Southern Highlands and you walk in the door and there is a massive photograph of him which he'd, he'd taken from the front of house of the Regent Theatre in Melbourne and it's all in a light box and it says Annie starring Alan Jones. It's a photo of him in the wheelchair as FDR and that. Brilliant. And he adores it and he keeps saying to me, when are you going to revive it? Because I'm ready. I said, well, you've got four years, three years to get the accent down, okay? So I think he'll come and do it again for me. So we're going to see Annie again? Oh, it's a big moneymaker every 10 years, same as Chicago. There's a few shows that you bring out every decade. Is that because there's a whole new generation? Whole new generation. And they're guaranteed cash? Grease, Chicago, Annie, they're all in storage. Sound of Music? Sound of Music will come again. all the theatres, all the theatre folk will hear all this again and go, oh, oh God, God. Oh, the tired old thing. <laughs> anyway, um, My Fair Lady, of course, um, will happen again. Um, no, but there's there's a half a dozen of them, or maybe four of them, that you'd be crazy not to, to do. What about that rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne? Do you find that shows generally work in one city over the other? Uh, Depending on what the show is. No, no. That. I think what what more it is is Sydney is a harder city. Yeah. Regardless, I think Melbourne's a better theatre town. Um, people go to the theatre more there. Um, and is it because they've, they've got the theatre venues? Uh, no, certainly, Sydney got, certainly got yeah, rid of a lot of. Yeah, theater. yeah. They've certainly got the venues, which is fantastic, and the government enhancements spend a lot of money on them. Great theatre owners down there. Where in Sydney, there's a lot of other distractions. You know, we don't have a theatre district where we do... In Melbourne, you've got, you know, the Princess, you've got the Comedy, you've got Her Majesty, you've got the region around the corner, and then up around the corner, you've got the Arts Centre. So it feels like, you know, it's all there. Uh, where here, you've got... You're scattered, and we've only got two that are working, other than, you know, the state theatre companies and Belvoir. Um, it, it, it's just it's just harder, and I think people are more... We, we do better business in Melbourne than we do in Sydney. And Brisbane, fantastically, you know, is always very good. So you're doing a big river, crazy for you, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Cabaret Secret Garden. And in there is a little show called The King and I, which hadn't been done in Australia for 20 years, I That's right. Mm. So where did you get the idea to do that? I got the idea. It was, again, another passion. There were certain 
benchmarks in my career. And King and I, I remember seeing sitting in the back of my mum and dad's car in Adelaide as at the age of probably five or six in my pajamas, being told to duck down and the blanket thrown over me so they could sneak me into the drive-in without paying myself and my younger brother. And we went and saw the King and I at the drive-in with Deborah Carr and Yul Brynner. And all I remember from that film is that big dress and a lot of gold and red. Um, anyway, for some reason, and that was one of those early, early influences again that went, oh, what's that? Glamour and fantasy. Colour and movement. Colour and movement. Yeah. And so I always wanted to do it. Now, I always believed, <coughs> as I got older and I researched the show, that it was written for Gertrude Lawrence originally, so it was the woman's story. Show, yeah. It's the woman's journey. When Gertrude Lawrence died and Yul Brynner stepped up, he was still with it, he stepped up and then I think Celeste Holm went into it and somebody else. It then became, over the years, it became Brynner took it and tw- tw- turned it around and it became the, kin- the, the King's story in a way, which it never was. It was always I's story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to always take it back to um, the original sort of feeling for it and that it was the woman's story and that when it came down to casting as I mentioned you know Debbie Byrne was offered it and probably somebody else from here and they all turned it down and then we looked to London and I there was going to be talked to Susan Hampshire about it for a, a second and then Roland came up with the idea of Hayley you know Roland Roccicelli, Roland Roccicelli. Yeah. and he had met her and known her and so we booked her without getting her to sing She'll be able to sing it. Don't worry about it. Well, she gets here, and of course, she couldn't sing it. You know, well, well Gertrude she... Lawrence couldn't. No, really Gert- exactly, yeah. and that was the way I convinced myself it was the right thing. And Hayley could certainly act. Oh, I could act the yeah. pants off it. Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. Did you see that? No. Mm. Oh, you did. Mm, yeah. Um, and she, you know, she could do "Getting to Know You," and she could do. It was just one song that was pretty hard, which was that. One of them, I can't remember up front it was, one of the early songs, which was hard for anybody. Um, anyway, I thought she got away with it really well, and we did. And subsequently, she did it in America, the same production when it went on tour through the States. She didn't do Broadway, but she did... It was Donna other, Murphy. Donna Murphy did it, yeah. And you had Elaine Page. Elaine Page, Elaine Page in uh, London. <laughs> Tell me that story about... That, we were... <laughs> oh, God, that was the nightmare. We... <laughs> I get this phone call from Stolmos Theatres, this is before Andrew Lloyd Webber, from a lady called Nika Byrne, who is a great friend and a great producer in her own right in England. And she was running all the theatres over there for the Stolmos Group. And she said, I think it was Stolmos Group, yeah. She said, oh, Frosty. She said, what would, I, what would you do if I told you the London Palladium was available and we want to do, and, and available for the King and I, would you do it? She said, we wouldn't invest any money, but we'd rent you the theatre. I went, oh. And she said, and I've got somebody that will probably put some of the money up, which is a man called David Ian, who I'd known earlier. And would you be interested? I said, leave it with me. And at that stage, I was working for a company called SEL, Sports and Entertainment Limited, that we went into partnership and did some things together. So I went to them, and they did the budget, and it came out at 10 million Australia. $10 $10 million, Australian dollars, $5 million pound, 
I think it was. Yeah. So how long is it after the Australian production? Because you we did it. We did. Success. We did Australia in '94, I think. Then it went to Broadway '96. Then 2000, we did the London Palladium. So David Ian said, he said, I think I can get a lane page. So you've got the Palladium, you've got the ten thousand dollars, and you've got a lane page. And you go, we're nuts if we don't. So and we all sort of knew she was probably wrong for the role. And God, there's some stories I could tell you, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, we we uh, so we do it. We decide to do it now. And so we all fly to London. Me, some of the SEO people, a guy called Rodney Rigby who worked for me who's now gone out on his own. Anyway, so we get to, we're, we're having a private dinner at the Garrett Club in a private room. So there's me, there's Rodney Rigby, there's David Ian, there is the head of Stolmos Theatres or Lloyd Webber Theatres, whatever it was in those days, and Chris Renshaw, the director, and Elaine Page. But anyway, she has been... Um, She's been at a health farm for about three weeks before she gets there, right? So Chris decides to meet her across the road, around the corner at the Covent Garden Hotel, to have a drink, to just talk actor to director, yada yada, before they go and meet the suits. Hello? So anyway, we're supposed to be there at six o'clock and we're all standing around, sort of like at a funeral or a wedding and that. No leading lady, no director. So they arrive an hour later. So that's all right. So they get there. And I looked at her and Chris, and Chris went like that, like, oh, we've had a few drinks. So she's been at a health farm. She hasn't had a drink for three weeks and probably nothing to, or not a lot to eat that day. So she's in a good mood, jolly. Chris's in a good mood. So we all sit down in that. And she sits at the head of the table and I sit to the left of her. And she said, I think you should all tell me who you are. Well, I know who you are, pointing to David Ian. And so and then there's the guy from Stolmos Theatres, and she goes around the table. And by that, she started to not just get a bit tetchy. I don't know why. And, and then she said, what do you do? And she said, oh, and you're John Frost. And I said, that's right. So then I got to a point where I thought I should actually say something on behalf of the group and that we're doing this show. So I pushed my, no, I, I was sat down there and I looked at her and sort of quiet on the table and that. So you know when you actually say something, when you, if you're agitated or a little nervous, you can actually, I can, I can see the words come out of my mouth and I try to push them back in if they're incorrect or I've lost my temper, like it's like, shut up well you're gone too far but you can't stop it you've gone too yeah, far yeah so i was very conscious of a very british table and i was very conscious of my australian accent for some reason the minute i opened my mouth my australian accent sounded like chips rafferty who was an old australian film star and it sounded like this Geez, Elaine, I'm really pleased you're doing this show for us. I wish you would have done it in Australia, you know. And, so, and it's sounding so broad as it came out of my mouth. And she just said, stop. She pushed her chair out and stood up. And she said, my name is Elaine, not Elaine. Elaine, like a street, a road. And I went, geez, here we go. This is going to be fun and games. So 
it was an in- interesting nine months or a year, whatever she did on it. I love that story. Oh, I told it to Carol O'Connor. Yeah. And she said, so when we see each other, she goes, my name is Caroline, like clothesline, remember. <laughs> Not Caroline. <laughs> so, but of course, King and I, you win your first Tony Award. Yeah. For Best Revival of mm. the Musical. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Tony Knight, because, you know, uh, uh, Roger uh, Kirk... And Brian Thompson. Both won Tony's yeah, as well. Yeah, Design. Yeah, yeah. Donna Murphy. Won it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was extraordinary. Like, we were nominated, and I went... <laughs> and I, I, Look, even just opening on Broadway was enough. It was fantastic. Yeah. And then the Tony's came up. Then, then the whole award season started, and we won Drama Desk, and we won Critics Circle Awards, and we won... Lo- I was, a whole lot of American awards for it. And then the nominations come out and we're nominated, uh, which was fantastic. And I remember doing a, talk about Bolshe, doing an interview for the Bulletin magazine that said, oh, you're going over to, I said, yes. And they said, do you think you'll win? And I said, of course you will win. I don't want to come back with nothing. Yes, of course we're going to win. Mm, terrible thing to say, I so up myself. Uh, but. I sat there, went there, and I remember vividly John Michael Howson, who came that same night. And there was a whole big cocktail party at Rogers and Hammerstein office that night before we all went down to the Tonys. And it was, you know, Joan Sutherland was there, um, all of Rogers and Hammerstein, all the families, and it was a big, big deal, this big cocktail party. So we go down to the Tonys, and they say, they sing out The King and I and the names of the producers so I get up and I was very conscious of not falling up the stairs and doing stuff like that and counting the steps as they tell tell you you should so I just got up there and you know I was with five other these are the days before they invited you know every investor and thousands of producers now they have on these shows in those days there was only five of us so we all got up Michael David spoke who was the head of my co-producing factor. Because I always had this thing that if we were going there to take it, that I wanted it not necessarily to be pushed out there that it was an Australian production, that it came from Australia, that the Americans had to discover it. We're on their turf. It, it It's an American iconic piece written by Americans. So that we just happened to find a different way of doing it well. Yeah, And so... We played down the whole Australiana thing about it. And it was only Brian Thompson who got up there, got loving, thank God, and said, this came from Australia, you've got to come over and visit us sometime in America, which was fantastic. Um, but no, it was bizarre in accepting the award and then whizzed across to Sardis, where I promise you, where it, and it was the 50th anniversary of the Tony, so it was a special year. And looking around that room... There was everybody that you had grown up with as a kid, stars, because most of the old Tony winners were invited there that night. And at the end of the show, no, before the end of the show, they wanted to take a photograph of all the recipients, all the major recipients, and that evening of the last 50 years of the Tonys. So there was, everybody was there. There was Channing, was the Carol Channing, Lise Minnelli, Bernadette Peters. You looked on that, but there was Harry Belafonte. There was Patricia Neal. There was, I've got, I've got the photo and there I am. John Michael House has said to me, just make sure you're standing dead center. 
<laughs> That's all you've got to worry about. So I did. And there's this wonderful photograph with a big 50 and the Tonys. It's up in my office upstairs. Um, and um, it's, it's fantastic, you know. So I was very lucky. It was special. And, things, and that, cha- that did change a lot of things for my career, particularly in America and in England, because all of a sudden... They know. They do know who you are. Then you take it seriously. Yeah, very yeah. seriously. Yeah. And you know, you to get a meeting, easy. Just ring up, and they know who you are. And you, yes, we'd love to see, you know come in and you know, or you were approached to do things that you probably were never approached to do before. And then a second Tony Award with hairspray. Hairspray, and that was basically that was different because we saw. I went with the SEL guys, and we we saw a workshop of it, and basically it was a. It wasn't even a workshop. It was more of a reading. And they were all on stools and sang the songs and read the script and that. And I went up to James Erskine, my co-producer, and I said, we have to be a part of this. I just knew instinctively it was so good and so right for the time. And we put a million dollars into that and it still gets checks. You know, unbelievable. Of course, yes, yes. You mm, forget about mm. that, but these shows that go on yeah, forever yeah, yeah. in regional theatres and That's schools, right. and, schools and everywhere, and, yeah, as well as the yeah, revivals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you invest in the development of a, a lot of Broadway shows. Mm. I saw your name recently in um, American Psycho. Yeah, that's right. I was one of the investors. That had a big yeah, chunk yeah. of that. Lost it all. Right. But, but obviously you're investing for a return, but also I guess so that you get first dibs in you Australia. Get, you get first dibs with in Australia. Hits. Yeah. And you get... Uh, ongoing royalties. So, you know, when that, that little production that played the Hayes Theatre here, recent, a couple of years back, you know, we probably got $2.80 out of that somewhere along the line. But it's still yeah. it's better than yeah. paying $2.80. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And, and because... Well, to save your stamps. Yeah, and I read the stuff and I listened to the music and I loved it and I thought, that, you know, if, if, if it was anything like the English production, I thought it would be, I thought it would be a big success, but I misjudged it. You know, it was... That happens sometimes. Yeah, I, I loved it on Broadway. I thought it was a terrific. Show. Oh, you saw it. Yeah. I never got to see it. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I wish yeah. I'd seen yeah. it. John McCallum and Googie Withers, mm-hmm. big influence professionally Massive. and personally yeah. in your life. Mm-hmm. When did you first meet John and Googie? I met them in 1978 when I was the stage manager for The Kingfisher with Frank Thring. It was a three-hander play, and Roland was the um, stage director, production stage manager, as such, and. I, Malcolm Cook, who I'd worked with with Ken Brodziak, uh, offered me the job, and uh, and I was coming out of working for the Old Tote Theatre Company. I was a stage manager for five or ten, five six years there, and by the time the Old Tote closed down, I was a bit disillusioned with theatre and actors and everybody because the, you know the Old Tote was dying in its dying days, and you know it was. It had to come to an end. It was disastrous being mismanaged. And I was, you know, I did, I was sick of doing Chekhov and I was sick of doing Shakespeare and I was sick of doing all the smart plays. I'd done them all, you know, and I worked with some wonderful people, wonderful actors, but it's just over all the negativity. There's a lot of nights in the theatre there too, through your career, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. You're hardly at home. <laughs> well, you don't. You know, well, it's like being an actor. It's you're not. Work, yeah. yeah, you're not. You, and you know, we, I just went from show to show, and and so anyway, all of a sudden, this thing comes up: Cookie Withers and John McCallum. And I jump at it because I remember my mother and father talking about Cookie Withers and John McCallum because they're big stars in the fifties and film stars from Eden and film stars. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I jumped at it, and so the first job I had on it before we went into rehearsal 
was to pick up Googie Withers's clothes, her costumes, which were her gowns, which were Norman Hartnell, whoever, whoever, like three French, uh, Norman Hartnell being English, and I think two or three other pieces that were from France where she'd gone over to, to the couturiers over there and they dressed her, you know, so it was all about, look how beautiful I look. And so she was probably in her 50s then and John a little bit older. Um, so they were, I think they were at their prime then, um, probably a bit over their prime, but they were, they were fantastic, you know, and people would come backstage and you'd just, your jaws would drop. And, you know, the fridge was always full of champagne and smoked salmon. So people would come in, you know, it'd be Lord and Lady, whoever, or it'd be this person, or it'd be, you know, the governor of New South Wales. But they were, they were such creatures of the theatre, weren't they? The, well, the, you the, knew the, them, the, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Fontaine. Yeah, so, totally, yeah, totally. Australian. And it was about that. And so we got to know each other personally. I used to stay at their house every year that down at Bayview and eventually moved into the area. Um, but they were... They were like surrogate parents to me in a very odd way, you know. I used to adore them and cared for them and, and you know, at least twice a week we'd be out to lunch or dinner. And, and she had a big appetite too. She, she, she loved her food. When she, <laughs> John would always say that, you know. Um, John Callum. And, and, you know, you'd go over there and say, oh, you know, what time do you want us to pick you up, John? Oh, but we'll come over at six for a drink. And we'd go over there and then the champagne would be cracked or it'd be a scotch and before you left you'd had two scotches and a bottle of champagne yeah. then we go out to dinner yeah. you know hysterical uh, um yeah, as we have discussed i did that production of an ideal husband mm. that, that you produced that they mm. were in and um i just adored them they because they were such theater animals mm. but but also you know i i just sit their feet with the stories yeah, etc yeah. and I remember I'd sit in the dressing room with Gould quite a lot mm. and stage management put a voice a mm. message over one day mm. saying notice the company uh, the fruitcake in the fridge is a prop uh, it's to be used uh, on stage only she turned to me and said I'm married to the producer I'll eat what I like because <laughs> <laughs> of course John was a co-producer, I think, with you. Yeah, on that. that. Yeah, with, with yeah. Bill Kenwright. Yeah, with Bill Kenwright. It was really John and I, money, and Bill. I think he just rented the set, and when the set came out, it was like it had been. Oh, it was in a terrible mess, and the costumes they sent all the wrong costumes. They were like something from Vanity Fair, so it was you know a different period and all that. So we basically had to rebuild well, most of the costumes. The costumes are built, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. We John, did that. John ran the firm. John McCallum ran uh, J.C. Williamson. Correct, for, yeah, for several years and was responsible for people like Nancy Hayes and Jill Perriman's career with Australian performers. So you guess, know, starring, you know, in musicals with Australian stars. So I guess he's mentoring you a lot also mm. in, in the business and how to, how to run a, a production. Yeah, I think so. And I think George, I mentored him a bit because he couldn't believe... The, I remember that production it cost us just over a million dollars to put on and he said i can't you know he said in the old days you know we'd put this on for fifty thousand dollars and i said well john these are not the old days anymore we were, the, we were the first plane to the lyric theater that's and, right and we opened that me, he theater said, he said do you realize there's 16 doors for the ushers in here yeah now, if they cut that down to four we'd save so much money. yeah he's right but you can't because of fire restrictions or whatever <laughs> health and safety but he was he, he couldn't believe the co- what it costs these days you know um 
but we both made a lot of money out of it, which was fantastic. And it did crack a business. We mm. played Brisbane, Adelaide, and no, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember that night Googie fell over in our entrance? That yes. preview? Yes, and twisted her ankle. I, I had to escort her yeah, off. After yeah, the yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, that was a worry. But um, but they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary um, during that season. That's I right. I remember it was a yeah. Saturday matinee and evening show. It's just, just, just beautiful. Um, they lived to ripe old ages too, didn't they? Oh, yeah. John uh, to his 90s and Googie into her 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was there the day John died. Oh, it was wow. very sad. That's I remember him telling... privilege. Yeah. He was... Um, he's got leukaemia and I got really emotional about it because I said I looked up into the sky and said for God's sake this man's got to 94 let him live to 104 yeah. it means nothing yeah. you know no, but he went with that and she I think she eventually went you know broken heart broken heart yeah I was going to say that because mm. mm. I remember her saying to me you know how much she missed him and life wasn't the same and you know so, so it costs a lot of money to put on a show costs more money now and it's just taken a million dollar jump last year and I was talking to our accounts people here just saying why is the show costing me you know instead of four million all of a sudden it's gone to five million how can it go to five million overnight another million overnight but it's just the costs you know is that what the theatre hire and theatre hire to advertise no it's not so much the deal well it's a bit of everything and it's not usually it's not actors it's you know Crews are expensive, advertising is expensive, theatres are outrageously expensive. You know, to rent in 2020, you know, the Lyric Theatre in Sydney or the Capital, you're talking $120,000 a week now plus. You wow. know, it's ridiculous. So That's a lot of overhead that you've got to recoup. Yeah, that's right. You've got to get, and it's like signing a lease for an apartment. You know, you sign that lease, you've got to pay it. And if you, you close early, you've got to pay that rent out. So it's a harder gamble where you they you just can't close and say, oh well, no one else the show's a, a dud or no one else wants to come and see it. They'll hold you to that contract. So that's scary. We haven't had that many times. Maybe once, once, one and a half times. Yeah. So how do you know when, when tickets aren't selling? What do you do to sort of? You just the thinker caps go on, and you've got to invent we, ways you, of getting. Well, yeah, we, we just have to. House. Yeah, we have to sit there, and we we will have marketing meeting after marketing meeting to work out how we're going to move, you know, more seats, and ideally not give them away, but sell them quietly at a uh, a reduced price, or you know, there has been that thing where people now wait four shows oh they'll go in the last two weeks everything goes for 60 bucks or something we've tried over the years and I think we've succeeded in most of our shows not to do that we're trying to cut that out because because you you alienate those people who paid full price well that's this that yeah 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 and I you don't want people to think you know if they can wait for two wait for the last two weeks you know like shows like Chicago which are mega hits and My Fair Lady and Book of Mormon and and Shrek's doing extremely well now, you so, know. So what's the average ticket price now? It's $140 to see a show? Oh, it, well, you can get them yeah, cheaper. It, you can get them cheaper, but the average across the board is probably about 110 But then, you know, if we're doing something with the opera company, you know, you can charge up to $300 a ticket and you get it at the opera house. It's at the opera house. Yeah. So, um... Remember the arrival of those Cam Mac shows when shows suddenly jumped to eighty nine dollars or something. 
you know, I know, yeah. No, well, I remember like when, a deal. when cats first right. came to Australia, yeah. they put all of a sudden they put the price up to thirty-five dollars, and everybody went, "What? He's nuts!" Yeah. Thank God he did. Yeah. So. You know, but but that that's the scariest thing that you know that we outprice ourselves. That theatre becomes so expensive that the average punter that would really like to go won't go. Well, it's like opera. Opera should be for the people, but yeah. it's such an elitist. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you know, it's to get a good ticket, you're three, four hundred dollars yeah. you know. Do you read reviews? No, because I have no respect for the reviewers in this country. They can't right. even string two words together as far as I'm concerned. Right. And let alone all these people that think they're a reviewer by, you know, doing a, um, you know... Online blog. Yeah, yeah, drives me nuts. Yeah, right. I don't read them. Do re- can reviews uh, no. affect the success of a show or a failure? No, look, if you've got... Maybe on Broadway, I suppose. Maybe with, on Broadway. Ben but, Brantley. And, yeah, but yeah. in Australia, I don't think you can. Because, look, the arts journalism in this country, the editors have managed to push it away and squash it and squash it away. Like, the arts, the arts writers now, are, you, you know, I don't know how they make a career. It must be really, seriously, very hard. Well, I think that's why they're turning yeah. to having their own online. Well, they are. They things. are. Yeah, yeah. Stop but pointing I, to my computer. This is a podcast. It's very different. Well, I'm still living in a different Thank era. You. All right. Okay. <laughs> but but you know it it does. I've got to say that arts journalism in this country, I think, is very poor. I think it's very. Um, I don't think they know how to write. I think they're dull. I think the reviews that are written, good or bad, are boring. We sit down after every opening night and we, with the, with the um, creative team, not the creative team, the marketing, the, uh, marketing people, people yeah. and we go through the reviews. Now, let's assume we've got a, fan, a, a, a show that has been badly reviewed, right? Usually there's something redeeming there that you can pull out. Let's say we've then got a show that has got stunning reviews, such as Shrek. Nothing. You read the reviews, and I can't get through them because they're so boring. Now, you look in London and you look in, in New York. I've got a couple of books, which you've probably got, of the, some of the best, funniest, wittiest, smartest reviews of shows, of films, and yeah, that. Kenneth Tynan. Oh, yeah. brilliantly written. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he might have hated the show or loved the show, but there are quotes in there that you could pull out and do what you want. But here, it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Just terrible. Anyway, that's my pet hate about arts journal, particularly reviewers. My, my biggest hates in here is the agents and reviewers. Because they, but most of the agents are failed actors that can't get a gig. Decide it's easy. Let I'll be an agent, and give all these poor bastards out there that are trying to be in show business all the worst information and the worst. Oh, hopeless. Anyway, put your stick away now. Oh, I haven't. Get me really stirred up. <laughs> give me a scotch and I'll tell you more. We'll do the R R version next the, time. The uh, yes, yeah. the yeah. the extras. Oh. Do you get nervous? Um, or are, are you superstitious on it? No, no, I used to get... I get nervous if it's... Look, if I'm producing Greece or Chicago... Oh, yeah, I'm doing Greece or Chicago. It's fine. The show's perfect. The show works. You can't screw them up because they're well-constructed. The public have a... You know, they know what they're going to see. It's fine. 
we'll open with a big advance, that it's easy. The ones I get nervous are, are, are the new ones that I've never done before, you know. So, you know, Book of Mormon was a very, um, always believed Book of Mormon would be a smash hit in Australia. I just knew the humour was so on it, on the money for this country. And some people have said to me, oh, are you sure you should be done? Always knew, without a gap, that didn't have to, was fantastic. Well, it was South Park, you know, a big following and all that sort of thing. Yeah, but the humour, because the humour's so out there, I think Australian humour's really out there also. Well, what know. about the producers? I mean, Mel Brooks is a great comic icon, etc. Did that do as well as you'd hoped it would? No, it didn't. Right. And I think the problem was, um, was that with it, we, you know, when, when you saw it in New York and you were lucky enough to see, sit at St. James Theatre and see Nathan... Lane. Lane and um, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick do it. You were caught up with a house full of people that wanted to be there, love the Jewish humour of it, love the show business in, because in New York and in New York in particular, you know, it's showbiz. You know what I'm mean? saying? So you could And the show in. is so heavy yeah. with pastiche oh, and reference totally. to other They knew it all and, the yeah. time. Mm. We're here in Australia, we had two great performers being one being Reg and one being Tom. And Chloe Dallimore. Um, it just... And they worked their butts off, those the three of them, particularly Reg. And it it just missed. Not because of the actors. It was just that because we don't have a tradition of that sort of, that sort of humour here. Yes, you can say all the Mel Brooks movies did terrific business. Yeah. But, you know, we made... Eventually got all our money back from it only because we sold the set for a million dollars to Mexico. So that got us over the line. So if we hadn't sold the set, we would have been a million down. But it broke even. Of course, yes. There's things like all your sets and costume. Mm. Um, we have a, we Do have, you have a story? We have a huge, massive warehouse right. in Goulburn. Right. And So that's where your Grease and your Annie lives and your Sandy And Wicked and, and all of that. And Mid- Carol Cook. And Carol Cook. Millions yeah. of dollars worth of costumes. I've got costumes way back to Big River and and uh, Jerry's Girls, all in storage, in cold storage there. I can go through every show. Oh, brilliant. And go, that sort of, all of Googie's, some of your your costumes probably sitting yeah, there. Yeah. Um, all the, the majority of the sets that we keep or we know are going to come back um, are there um, and sets that are about to happen. You know, we've, we've bought the set of Pippin from... Um, New York when it closed in New York. Oh, that circus theme. Sitting there, wonderful yeah. production. Yeah, right. yep. So we might see Pippin one day. You might. Right. And I've got the Jury Lane West End production of Forty Second Street sitting there. Great. Um, Just for the future, sometime. And I suppose the stars have to align. Yeah, and yeah. You've got the availability of the right actors. The right, at the correct, right time. and the theatre yeah. dates and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's all sitting there, sitting there. So, uh, but you know, it's insured for millions. It's, um, it's a massive. It's about one, how many is it? It's one, three, three big warehouses full of stuff now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I just signed the lease for another five years, so. Do you go to every opening night around the country? Of, you yeah. know, like something, Chicago? Yeah, I do. Will yeah, you go I to do. Brisbane, Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, okay, all that. Yeah, I don't go to the closings anymore because I think I can save the money on the airfares. They don't need, need me there for a closing night. No. Unless it's a really, you know. The end of a long, long Yeah, season. long run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The Australian musical theatre product, I read uh, a a quote that you said once, um, I don't think that there will be a great Australian musical. That's true. Mm. Why? Why? Because we don't have the writers in this country. And I think that... uh, 
how can I say it? Um, someone will take offence to this, but I don't care. Um, they did before. Um, I just don't think we will. I think it's because, you know, the Americans do it so well and so brilliantly that why even waste your time thinking about it? I suppose I suppose that's sort of contradicting myself. In a minute. Somebody could have said to me years ago, John Frost, why are you wasting your time wanting to be a producer? But you've you put know. money. You put money in Priscilla. I believe that you've got mm-hmm. a musical about Red Dog in development. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. So these surely are Australian musicals. Yeah, they are. But I'm not saying they're going to be the great Australian musical. Right. Okay. And I don't believe there should be the great. When I say Australian musical, I think a musical's got to be. I would try and do a musical that is international. There's no point writing about kangaroos and and koalas and shearers and and shearers yeah. and all that sort of stuff. You know, no one's interested. But who uh, would have been interested in the French Revolution worldwide? Well, totally, yeah, but I don't think. I think there's a little bit more interesting things than koalas. I think the French Revolution is a bit more interesting than koalas. Well, it's about love and loss and war. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but but I don't think. I haven't seen one Australian musical yet. The true Australian musical that's been written, the majority of them have all come from other scores, you know, the other. Jukebox musicals. Jukebox musicals. You know, Your Boy from Oz, Priscilla. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing is pulling, you know, the only one that I did was, what was it? Officer, Venetian Twins? Officer, oh, uh, Venetian Twins, yeah, yeah. Officer and a Gentleman, which they all panned. That was a disaster. What, what went wrong with Officer and a Gentleman? <laughs> I don't know. I loved yeah, it. Right. And to this day, I still think it was good. Right. Do you think there's sometimes a little bit of the Australian tall poppy syndrome creeps in and sort of doesn't want you to do as well as... I just wonder if that still exists. Right. Do you? Th- I, I don't know if it still exists. Across the mind occasionally. It, yeah, it might be. Yeah, it might be. Um, you know that Gore Vidal quote about you know every time uh, a friend of mine succeeds, a little piece of me dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course it's yeah, yeah yeah. If you look at it that way, yeah yeah yeah. No one likes anyone to be too successful. And Dr. Zhivago. Yeah. Well, I'm just talking about some of these shows which didn't go as successfully. Well, no, I've got to clear that up. Dr. Zhivago made us a nice wad of money. With the transfer to Broadway? Or? With the, no, 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 no. We weren't involved with Broadway. Right. We had our name on it, but we had no money in it. Right. We made money in Australia and in Korea when we did it. And it, you know, a couple of people said, oh, I was sorry to hear about Dr. Zhivago. And I said, why? We we're very happy. Now, right. in saying that, I couldn't buy an apartment with it. Yeah. But every, although all the investors got their money back and made money. So to me, that's a success. Ken Brodziak once said that to me. He said, a success, a hit show, is a show that pays back. A mega hit is if it makes a dollar. You know, an international hit is if it makes $3. So I've always sort of felt that, you know. Yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've you know you've you've gone to develop shows like oh, I think First Wives Club's in development still. Oh no, that's dead now. That's did gone. Easter yeah. Parade, you did. I mean, that was we did that workshop with Tommy Tune and yeah, Sandy yeah. Duncan. Duncan. Yeah, yeah, that never got off the ground. And you know, on Broadway at the moment, you know, it's not your shows, but we're seeing Beetlejuice and Tootsie and Moulin Rouge. Mm. You know, these writers who keep returning to film as source material. I know. It's are, are you craving it's... A, a totally original? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think that is. I I, I go to New York now or London that. I go, oh, well, I saw the movie. Do I really want to, you know, I, I love the movie with Dustin Hoffman, you know, or I loved it with, you know, what's his name that died? You know, it's, and you think, oh, do you really want to see it done as a musical? Not really. 
So there's not that you know somebody said to me the other day, oh, there must be a lot of exciting shows coming through. And I said, well, there's not. Mm. You know, there's not stuff that I can go over there and go. I really, really want to do this. You know, Is not, Charles, Charles Kingsford Smith got Universal Appeal. No. Right. That that won't happen now. Right. So you've been. That's gone. So I get your your workshop and just see where it can be yeah, taken. Yeah, yeah, and that potential. was that 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 show was was funded by. Um, an individual, another individual, a rich individual who was ma- absolutely mad about it, just adored it and wanted to, you know, not lose tradition and history and that. And I agree, you know, people like, you know, the Kingsford Smiths shouldn't be forgotten. They were mm. great pioneers in flight and all of that. But um, I don't necessarily think that they they are a five or $10 million musical. I read that um, this way back at um, when you were working with Ashley Gordon mm. that you were developing a musical about the life of Gloria Dawn oh yes what happened God. to that I think it was just discussed over a drunken dinner party one right night. so you didn't actually go into well we had I think we talked about to Donna about it Donna Lee her, her daughter, daughter. Mm. you're right yeah. I forgot all about that because it's a great story of show yeah yeah you know. yeah it is a great story but you know the thing is you and I would remember Donna Lee uh, uh, Gloria Dawn Mm. I saw her do Gypsy when she did it. Yeah, when when her and Tony Lamont were alternating it when she was really sick, but I got to see her do it, which she was wonderful. Yeah, we got to yeah. see a lot of those mm. iconic performances and yeah. shows yeah. In, in Australia. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky I've seen, you know, I saw Rex Harrison do My Fair Lady in a big revival in 1980. I saw Channing, Carol Channing do Dolly. I saw Yul Brynner do King and I. You know, I was going back the other night. The only greats that I haven't seen was Lawrence. I've seen Richardson. I've seen John Gilgood. I've seen all, you know, Peggy Ashcroft. I've seen Paul Schofield. All those extraordinary performers, except the only one I didn't see was, um, or the other one, Vivian Lee or Lawrence Olivier. They died before I did. But anyway. But But you've you've also worked with a lot of these big names as well. Mm. Do you get starstruck? Totally. You do? Yeah, right. yeah, and I'm glad I do because yeah. it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. You know, working with the likes of, you know, somebody like Julie Andrews who... Well, who was so formative in your, your early life yeah. with The Sound of Music at the mm. Pictures mm. and uh, mm. Mary Poppins mm. and My Fair Ladies, Alfie. Mm. Uh, she, um, she was everything that you hoped she would be, but more. She was extraordinary. And she was... When she came out to do My Fair Lady... She came out with a choreographer, um, the people that did it do her own hair and her own makeup, and her manager, and her an, an assistant. And we put a team with her, associates, Australian associates with her too. Karen Johnson Mortimer, um, uh, Guy uh, Simpson. Simpson. And she would get into that rehearsal room at nine o'clock in the morning the company would be called at 10 and she'd leave at seven o'clock at night and she was in her 80s then and it was like seven days a week it was like because i thought ah, oh, the associates will pick up a lot of the slack no and then when she came she said to me after she'd done all that initial publicity and that she said to me she said now look she said Julie Andrews won't be, you won't see Julie Andrews for another five weeks or six weeks. I said, why? She said, she's going to be directing. Wow. You know, so I went, wow, okay. And we got to do some public, so extra publicity. But but 
but it was like I'm the director now so I've got to concentrate on this not being out there being Mary Poppins and Maria on trap you know what I mean fair enough but we've developed a very strong relationship and I saw her just recently in October in New York when she was releasing her book spent a bit of time with her and and um her people but that show if you said to me out of all the shows you've done king and i secret garden and that my fair lady are the three tempos standouts for oh, you yeah yeah like all of them were an absolute joy to work on and that but that one in particular was unbelievable just and it was the first time i'd gone back and really got my hands dirty on a show too you know and we're well, doing from the, the ground up, weren't you? Yeah, uh, yeah. And the, the, all that. the most wonderful thing was doing the research to find those original designs, let alone the legals, and trying to get them out of people and and get them and then recreate them. Yeah. You know, it was fascinating. Did you see it? You did. I, did. Saw, it, I saw it twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I yeah. loved it. Was it. Did you hope that it might go to Broadway? I did. Yeah, we did hope that, um, but it was. It came at a time when. This other production, the Bart Share Lincoln Centre production, was being looked at, and because of the whole Me Too movement, and the way that the new production was presented, they sort of felt this this version of it, this 1955 version, was a little old-fashioned for what a new audience wanted right. to see. Okay, mm. reinvent the piece. Yeah, yeah. During the early 2000s, you, you partnered with James Erskine and Basil Scafidi mm. with Sports Entertainment Limited, mm-hmm. SEL. They were sports marketeers. Yeah. What what was that about? What did you learn well, what from was working a, with those fellows? Well, that what was really interesting about that was that we got to a point where we had the rights to Grease, the musical, right? And we'd paid like $200,000. And those days, we didn't have a lot of money, right? Well, we had a lot of money, but we did, you know, it was like you had to be careful. You're going from, well, not necessarily from show to show, but... Yeah, yeah we were. Had, Without doubt, we yeah. were. We were. And one, one stuff up could have... Yeah, brought the whole thing the down. End, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I always had this vision that Greece should be done as an arena production. Now, I'll tell you why. Because there's not too many shows you can do in an arena. I think you could do Chicago in an arena with a big starry thing. I think you could do that. But there's not a lot of others. So I thought Greece, as successful as it is around the world, it's a cartoon in a way. And everybody knows it inside out, upside down. And at the end of the day, they want to hear the favorite lines from the show and they want to hear the songs and they want to see some dancing and they want to see stars. And so... I thought, okay, so you could cut this script back, you know. So if you're sitting in double Z row, way up the top in a 20,000 seat entertainment, entertainment centre, yeah. it's not going to matter. You're just there to hear. And, you know, really, if you're a theatre person, you don't usually go to arenas anyway. So it's really for people that don't go to the theatre. So we priced it. So we did it. We priced it at $55 a ticket, I think it was, and it did... It sold millions and millions of dollars worth of tickets. But I didn't have the money to put it on. So I went to Sports and Entertainment Limited and they said, we'll put it on. And we did a deal on it, financial deal. And then when that finished, they said, oh, why don't you come and work for us? Work with us. So we did. 
And there were good times. And we did Sound of Music and we did Man of La Mancha and we did... Oh, there was another one in there somewhere, I think. Oh, Annie. Annie. So were you able to be a bit autonomous with, with GFO? Yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Or you were yeah. Tied no, we, with, we, we, we were tied in with them. We couldn't right. do... Not that we did. We didn't do any other shows outside of that. Right. We did art, the play art. Yeah. But it was me taking them to it and saying, this is what you should do. Yeah. We should do this. We should... Hairspray. Yeah. You know, they so they funded it, really. And the main event. The, the, the main event. Yeah, yeah. That was... My, uh, Olivia was my idea. Right. And I think James was... Um, was Warlow and Glenn Wheatley was um, Farnham's idea. So we all went and got involved with that and that was a runaway success. Mm. Then we did the Tim Rice the debacle. Yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> I wasn't even in town for that. I never saw it. I was in London with... What was that called? King and I. An Evening with Tim Rice or something. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. yeah then we did, about, we did the Kirov Ballet too. Why we did that, I have no idea. Well, there's a ballet audience out there. Yeah, yeah, but they don't like necessarily like going to the entertainment centre. Or they didn't. I watched it in the Arena's Ballet Spectacular. Oh, did you? No, did you? Is that what the hero yeah, was? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, what? yes. You would have gone. No, I didn't go to that. No, no, no. So I don't, a lot of people didn't. Right. So um, we did that. And then we did art with Tom Conti. And then we did... Um, Man of La Mancha, which wasn't successful. Oh, and we did Footloose. Oh, yes. Remember that? It was quite fun. I like Footloose. And what was interesting, that opening night, and this is so deceiving, that opening night, I remember sitting in the dress circle and we're all on our feet at the end and there's balloons going off and goodness knows what. And I looked at James Erson and I said, this is mega, this is going to be mega. I promise you, this is the next Grease. Well, on Monday, the box office, I think we'd sold 30 tickets. After, I think they were okay reviews. They weren't great, um, but they were they were all right. Sold thirty tickets, and it was downhill from there. And I think we closed after six weeks. Hmm. Rob Guest and Rob Natalie Bassingthwaite, yeah, Spencer yeah. McLaren, that's right, Kane McAvale, yeah, uh, Kane Alexander, yeah, and Penny Cook, Penny Cook, yeah, yeah, great cast. You, can, you never can tell, I guess. No, you There's can't no tell. formula no, no, for success. No, no, none at all. None at all. So then you reform Gordon Frost. You yeah. decide to, to, to break away from SEL? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or that the, was time, mu- the time No, no, come. no. Time had come, and yeah. it was a mutual thing that I think after Man of La Mancha failed and Footloose, they thought, oh, this is all too hard, show business. So we got out, and so, of course, they did what they did. You know, I still see them, and it's all fantastic, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, and we all keep promising each other we're going to do something main event again sometime down the road or, or something. Mame. Or main, perfect. The arena spectacular. Yeah. That'd be great. Uh, and so we, we then did we uh, Bernadette and I, Bernadette Hayes, who's been with me for a hundred years, we set up a business, reformed the business into, and we worked out of the dressing rooms of the Lyric Theatre because we didn't have a lot of money, right. and so. We did that and we did, uh, what was the first thing up? Was, oh, oh not, um, Inspector Calls, the revival of it from the National Theatre. All right. And we did that and that was a modest success. Yeah. What about Sound of Music? Was that, uh, that thought to recapture the success of The King and I? No, I'm in love with Rodgers and Hammerstein. I just love yeah, yeah, their yeah. music regardless. Yeah. And I want to do the whole catalogue eventually. Or you know, Well, you're on South Pacific. Yeah, I've uh, got to King do, I, I've got to do music. Carousel and um, the other one, Oklahoma. What is it? Pipe Dream. 
I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to know the family really well, the Rogers and the Hammerstein family. Mary Rogers was a great friend, and old Bill Hammerstein, who was Oscar's son, right. he was a great friend too. He came out to Australia and, you know, yeah. used to see them in New York. The Sound of Music, though, another brilliant piece of casting, I think, with Lisa McCune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and John Walters. Yeah. Yeah, and Bert. Bert. Bert Newton. The f- no, that wasn't the... Was that the first time you used yeah, Bert? Yeah. And uh, oh, no, we'd used Bert on... Um, was that... I don't know if... I, they all get muddled up. Uh, he was in The Producers for us. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, Sound of Music. Sound of Music was before The Producers. Was it? He'd done uh, Beauty and the Beast, of course. Yeah, that was Jay Gibson's. Yeah, yeah, correct, so correct. So I think Sound of Music was the first time you used yeah, Bert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Uncle Max. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, you can't go wrong with Sound of Music, I guess. No, it, and when last time we did it, a few years back, it was a massive success. Yeah. It, it, those things are evergreen. People want to see them. And um, we, we've done, you know, we, we, lots of different incarnations of Greece. I've done about seven productions of it over the period of time. And our foray into Thailand, where we took South Pacific over there, the first South Pacific, and Gre- a production of Greece. And the guy that owned the theatre, his brother, had received a bullet in the back of his head. Oh. So, um, and they owed us $120,000 and they wouldn't pay it. And I said, you know, I need this money to pay our cast. And they wouldn't pay it. And so if you read between the lines, best shut up, not say anything. Or you might be like my brother. Yeah. Bullet in the back of your head sort of thing. So it was a bit sinister so we never went back there again and funnily enough about six years later the same people came to our office and said um, we'd like you to bring some shows to Thailand and we said yeah when you pay us $120,000 never heard of them again so have you pondered putting shows into places like Las Vegas because a show like Dream Lover would seem to be an ideal Fit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dream Lover's going to have another incarnation. That's going to happen in New York. We're talking to people now, producers now over there, to do it with. So that's not dead. No. But Vegas ever thought of that as a... Yeah, but I'd leave that to the American partners right. to, to do, really. Um, again, it's, you know, when you produce overseas, you really need somebody on the ground there that knows the territory no different to any of these people that come over here you know to produce and that they need an australian partner you know we're involved with magic mike live you know the yeah the the mail show so and we're their partners here in australia to to pull that together that opens in may in melbourne you know uh pop-up theater that we're putting on it'll come to sydney and tour eventually are you good at delegation? Yeah, totally. Yeah? Yeah. Did too, you all, have you always, always been like Always been like that, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And when it doesn't go the way I want it to go, then watch out. Okay. Is there a ferocious side? Yeah, Mr. totally. Frost? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ask anyone here. Right. I've got to be careful now because you can't yell at people. No, no. Which I think is really sad. Right. Well, it's people's well yeah well, people health. used to yell at me you know oh, so. yes. mm. well, I think that's a fair, fair. new millennium mm. <laughs> managing long runs and the maintenance of shows how, yeah. how do you keep your finger on the table well, that, I think that it, shows are going properly well no I, we have look I'll give you an example we did a revival of Wicked you know when well, it was the continuation of Wicked 
And some dopey reviewer in Melbourne, see, it comes back down to the media and the reviewers. A dopey reviewer in Melbourne said, oh, it's tired. It wasn't. And I have to say, we'd had Stephen Schwartz out like three months earlier or two months earlier saying he couldn't believe how tight the show was and how wonderful it was. You know, that was, again, with the same cast, basically the same cast. So it depends on your associate directors and your associate choreographers that keep it tight. And you've got to make sure those people are the ones that, um, that, that monitor it all the time. Now, with Book of Mormon and that, we have the Americans come over all the time, usually every three months from America. So it's very heavily policed and monitored that show uh, creative wise and you get show reports I guess oh yeah I get everything I get yeah. at night I get well, I've got five shows or oh, four shows on at one now at the same time and you know at 10 o'clock at night I get a show report from each of the shows so I can see if Peter Ayers has played up or forgot his entrance or whatever yeah. and then I get all the box office figures from that night so I know what every show's done how many tickets haven't been sold and what it is so I, every night I get that right how do you find your investors? They're is, great. Is it an easy task? Um, yeah, I re- and I enjoy that. I yeah. really enjoy raising the money and finding investors. Um, and we, I'd like to think we look after them. Um, you know, we don't, we don't encourage anybody to, if you can't invest $50,000, don't invest. And if you can't afford to lose your money, don't invest. You know, that's the sort of benchmark, I think. But it, it's all, again, it's, you know... A lot of people who I've met and that and you know you they usually come out of the woodwork they come out to, they find us um, but we're always looking for new people to invest and the majority of shows I say about 90% of our shows all make money um, for our investors and for the company um, so yeah no and I enjoy that I enjoy that sometimes more than the creative side of it the business side because it always used to be the creative side but now I think it's gone more to the business side I find more interesting you're than, co-producing a lot now with the opera company yeah I do a show a year or two shows a year with them that's yeah. an interesting move yeah that's yeah. been good yeah um, because I think they the musical now is their biggest revenue earner um, other than the operas to know. the detriment of the opera audience I guess well but I guess, that, again, production houses need to have some sort of revenue to stay afloat. Well, no, I think you'll find mo- most opera companies now around the world right. do a musical. You know, Now, they're not going to do Rocky Horror. They're not going to do 9 to 5 or Shrek, but they're going to do Avita or they'll do the Rodgers and Hammerstein or Little Night Music. Yeah, Little Night Music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what we've brought to the relationship is how they could expand it to a bigger audience, a wider audience. So when they were doing the Little Night Musics and all that, it was really more about just doing it for their subscribers, where now you do, if you've got the right show, you just open that up and, you know, people have gone to the Opera House for the first time ever. They've never been there in all the years it's open, but we'll go and see a musical there. Um, And I think... just broadening that repertoire. And I think you'll find over the years that repertoire will broaden, which I hope it does for the opera companies, you know, musicals. Do you see theatre as 
being in a precarious state? I mean, no. is, it, is, is it still surviving? Re- There's really, no competition re- from streaming and Netflix? No, and, no, no, no. People no, still no. want to go out? People, I think people still want to go out and the younger audience, it's getting younger, which is fantastic. So we're doing the right, when I say we, I mean the industry, are doing the right thing. They are wanting to go. Um, you just got to find them the stuff that, that they want to go and see, you know. So... Um, no, I think, and I think thanks to, you know, social media now, you're getting to a bigger audience. Um, you can market to a bigger audience for a lot less money, which is fantastic. Um, and it's, it, it, it's only going to get, I've just noticed in the last 15 years, our audience have doubled and the industry's audiences have doubled now. Where it was, you know, people would never go to a musical because it wasn't cool. It's sort of cool now. Mm. And I, I know it's a corny word, but but it's accepted. And the younger kids will go now, you know. And I think this is what I enjoy doing. You know, when you look what we've got on now, we've got Chicago on in Melbourne, which is sort of your your <clears throat> average. I thought the average theatre go, but it's pulling such a young audience now, and it's like date night, and it's it's you know. And I think because it's sexy and it's smart and it's a good production. Mm. You've got Shrek that is pulling in audiences, which is, when you think of Shrek, it's a very old title. Okay, we haven't seen the show here. Um, but again, it's dealing with families over January. You've got Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in Melbourne, which has had a good rundown in Melbourne. Um, smart production, I think elegant looking. And again, it's sort of a, you know, an oldie but a newie in the sense of the way it's, it looks. And then we've got Book of Mormon in return season to Brisbane doing outstanding business up there, which again is bringing a whole brand new audience that don't never go to the theatre. Yeah. And, you know, we did a huge season up there this last year. And now even the thought of bringing six, eight months later, we've brought it back, which is unheard of. And it's just doing crackers, wow. you know, which is fantastic. Mm. So it's, it's good. It's that they want to go. They're out there. As long as you've got you know, I think the right show and you market it well and spend the money on advertising. And What do you love about the theatre? What I love about it? Yeah. One of the biggest kicks I get is standing uh, in a foyer and seeing all those people going, 2,000 people going in to see a show that I've had a whim about doing or even watching the curtain call from the stalls and just looking up and seeing all these people with smiles. I know it sounds corny, but smiles on their faces and thinking that's my contribution I suppose you know without me thinking let's do 9 to 5 or let's do Charlie or whatever yes all the work that's gone into putting it on and writing it and all that I can appreciate that but as a producer and selfish I can selfishly say I feel really good about it sure it's going to make me some money but but to see all those people leave that theatre thinking God, that was fantastic. And hopefully moved by it at the same time. So they come and see something else. And so, you know, it's like me. I would never, I wouldn't be in this business unless I walked past Her Majesty's Theatre in Adelaide that day. And seeing that curtain, I saw that much of feet and hearing a live orchestra. What's that all about? The Great Waltz. The Great Waltz. Mm. Well, thanks, Frosty. Thank, Thank you, you. For, um, for sharing your insight and, and for giving us product. 
to uh, to be those audiences in four years that you that you observe yeah. over over many many decades. It's mm. uh, it's always great to go and see a GFO show. Thank you. Well, I think we I hope to think we do them of a standard, you know, and people think they get their money's worth. Now and then they may not like them, but that's okay. You know, you can't win them all. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed sitting down with John Frost. Sitting down with John and having access to his history and vast knowledge, I am just in great awe. My appreciation to John and the staff at GFO for his generosity of time in sitting down with stages and recording this conversation. In 2020, the Gordon Frost Organisation presents Chicago, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Shrek, The Book of Mormon, 9 to 5 and Waitress throughout Australia. I hope the conversations have been flying into your inbox since we launched Series 3. I have to admit I had a bit of a backlog, so now that we've worked through them all, we'll be resuming normal programming and dropping back to the one episode per week. Haven't we had awesome guests so far? And again, a huge appreciation for their time and stories. More great stories to come, I promise. You've been listening to Episode 115 of Stages. Thanks for subscribing. Thank you all for the feedback too. Always a treat to receive. I'm Peter Ayers. You've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.